I'm going to read from uh, the next part of 1 Corinthians. If you're just joining us today, you haven't been before, we've been reading our way through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. We'll give you a little bit of an intro in a wee minute. So, uh, we're going to read from chapter 14, verses 1 to 25. You can borrow a Bible from the tables down at the front if you want, or just look at the screen, because it will pop up there in a little minute. So, the church in Corinth, just a wee recap for those that are uh, here for the first time today, was a church not dissimilar in some respects to um, a church in a city center like Glasgow, which is one of the reasons why I wanted us to look at it. It was a church that was made up of people from every uh, walk of society, rich and poor, um, slave and free in that society. Uh, it was also um, a, a, a kind of port city that was a crossing point, lots of migration, lots of people traveling east and west on trade routes, north and south. And so it was an intersection, and typically of uh, busy ports, you end up with folks from every direction uh, either passing through or living there. And in Glasgow, it's the same. Lots of people who've made Glasgow their home, lots of people here to study, passing through, and in the city center, lots of people uh, who may just join us for a day or whatever. And so we recognize some similarities with this church. Of course, the difference being we've got 2,000 years of church history, and they were uh, a very young church, and it was a very early stage since Jesus had uh, gone back to heaven, poured out His Spirit, and Paul had been uh, sent out along with the other apostles to go and plant churches. And so Corinth was one of the churches that was planted. And so in this church, you've got people who are coming out of all sorts of backgrounds. You've got people who are... Um, uh, who've, who've come out of um, pagan backgrounds. They've been used to worshiping all sorts of foreign gods. We've seen along the way that there are some people for whom uh, the gods associated with their place of work, because workplaces, I suppose a bit like trade guilds, had their, um, had their little rituals and religious customs as well, um, which actually is where all the kind of religious associations around Freemasonry come from. Um, because it started off as a trade guild movement and then uh, acquired more and more of a kind of religious edge. And so we've gone through this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he's wrestling with this people who, um, urging them to kind of uh, recognize what it means for them to be the church of Jesus Christ, now called out of all their different backgrounds, their different stories, the things that would very easily pull them back. He's had to speak to them about those that were caught up in sexual immorality. He's had to speak to those for whom uh, the, the pressures of their trade and the influences that might make it difficult for them uh, to prosper um, if they don't do all the things that their trade guild does. We've looked at all of these things. And now we're coming on to this, uh, or, or we're at this chapter 12 to 14 section, where Paul is speaking to them about something else that has happened in the church. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon them, and, and they're exercising what are called spiritual gifts. They're exercising manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, Paul wants to teach them what that means and how that's meant to play its part within the whole church, and how they're meant to exercise those gifts wisely, 
and well and in a way that helps them to work as a body and to be one people together. So we're going to read verses 1 to 25 of chapter 14. Now bear with. If you're coming new to this and suddenly it's all talk about tongues and prophecy and things, we, I will explain. Okay? So Paul starts off, his, his first words are, follow the way of love, because the chapter 13 that went before this one, Paul has been emphasizing that at the heart of any Christian fellowship, any Christian community, there has to be a commitment to love one another. Okay? And really the essence of what he's saying here, the essence of what he's saying is that there may be all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful other things going on, but if at the center and the heart of who you are as the people of God is not a commitment to love out the love that God has loved in, then you're missing the main thing, okay? The main thing is that everything flows from love and draws us back to love. And so at the center of everything we do has to be a commitment to loving God and loving one another. Those are the two greatest commandments, right? The greatest commandment is this, said Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you fail to do that, doesn't matter how star-spangled a church you're part of, doesn't matter how hip and happening, it doesn't matter how great the, the lighting or the music is, it doesn't matter how good the food is, it doesn't matter about any of the other stuff. Because if there's not love at the core and the heart, then we're missing it. Okay, chapter 14. Let's get to the actual reading. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more so, prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, Brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle. So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. 
For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Amen. May God help us to understand His Word. I had the uh, interesting privilege of going to Cambodia back in 2005, and then I got to go again in 2007. Um, I went back with a little group from, from the church that I was in before I came to Glasgow. And uh, while we were there, we, we were staying and working and helping with, a, with a, a Christian project in a place called Poi Pet on the border with Thailand. An incredible project run by a guy called Chum No, and uh, Chum No has done incredible things, just proclaiming Jesus, not just as a street preacher, by setting up incredible projects of mercy to help people. Uh, I could like, do a whole presentation just on all the stuff that Chum No is doing there, uh, putting in water pumps, teaching teenagers, giving them, them life skills like motorcycle maintenance and, and the girls. It's quite a, a divided culture gender-wise, so the girls uh, learning uh, to, to sew, use sewing machines, garment manufacture, that sort of thing. Helping families to plant uh, crops and run farms and set up small holdings, teaching kids in schools, taking teachers out to the remote areas and, and creating little pop-up schools out in the state. It just goes on and on forever, rescuing kids from child trafficking, you name it, as well as proclaiming Jesus and ministering to those dying of AIDS. And Chom Noah is a phenomenal man, and it's a phenomenal work that he has going on there. Um, and when we were there, we joined with them for their worship on the Sunday. Uh, and uh, so we went, we went into the church, and uh, it was a Cambodian local congregation of people that have responded to Jesus and come to faith. 
uh, through the, the, the practical service and witness of what Chom knows and the project has uh, done for them, but also because they've come to understand that behind the work that Chom knows has been doing for them is, is, is Jesus, is the kingdom of God, is God's desire to send people to rescue them and help them and meet them in their brokenness and their need and their emptiness and bring them into life. So we went into church, and, and they have this part of the service where it's the, the, their prayer time. Now, we don't do it this way. It would be interesting if we did. I know some churches do. But when it came to the prayer time, they did what's not at all uncommon in that part of the world, where everybody prayed all together at once. Uh, so everybody just prayed out loud, and, uh, and they were praying in Khmer. It was a culturally fascinating experience just to be in this place, and, and Cambodian uh, Khmer, Khmer is a very, it's, it's, I, can't, I don't speak Khmer, I haven't got any words, but it's, it has lots of kind of explosive sounds, well not explosives, but like that, which sounds really weird when, you know, but it just flows. So there was a whole room of people doing this, and, and they all knew what they were saying, and God knew exactly what they were saying, because He's fluent in Khmer. I did not have a clue. I mean, it was nice to be there and all, but, you know. And it was encouraging to be there and see all these Christians, not as scooby what they were saying. <laughs> what is the gift of tongues? Let's get back to basics. So on the day of Pentecost, we know that the Holy Spirit came in power, and suddenly the apostles, okay, the disciples who were gathered in one place, found that they could speak, or they found themselves speaking in other languages, intelligible languages. There were a whole load of other people there from all the different areas, and, and I put a map up on Pentecost Sunday, and you could see that all in a big circle around Jerusalem, in every direction, there were people who had come who spoke different languages. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came in power, the apostles were uh, supernaturally enabled to speak those other languages. So each one was given one to speak, and the folks that were there were like, wow, these guys are from here, but we can hear them talking in our language. That's really weird. But they were able to understand each one what was going on. Okay, let's put that over here. Because the gift of tongues that Paul is talking about is not entirely the same gift. What he's talking about here is, is a different gift of the Spirit, whereby someone might speak in a language that even they do not understand and nobody else understands either. Now, if you've heard people speaking in tongues, it can be a little disconcerting the first time because you hear someone talking what sounds like absolute gobbledygook, and you have not got a clue what they're saying. And then when you ask them, you discover they haven't got a clue what they've been saying either. So it's a strange thing. But it's a real thing. Paul, the apostle Paul, says, I'm glad I speak in tongues more than any of you. So Paul spoke in tongues. And speaking in tongues, sadly, has become one of those uh, dividing things within the church. Two lots of divisions, actually. There's the division of those who believe it's a real thing and it still exists, and those who think it passed out with the death of the apostles 
and it no longer uh, exists anymore along with any of the other gifts of the Spirit. I don't believe that. Why would God just give manifestations of His power and wisdom and knowledge and healing and, and all the things that we need as signs uh, of, of fruits of, of His activity? Why would, why would He stop doing that if He's continuing to want the gospel to spread and the kingdom to advance? So there's the group of people who say it, 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 it stopped and hasn't, and it also the people, it divides people along another line, which is that some people speak in tongues and some people don't speak in tongues. And people can get really hung up on it because sadly, parts of the church, in my view, uh, wrongly, I say that with respect, have uh, proclaimed that you can't be a proper Christian unless you speak in tongues, which is just nonsense. Okay? because Paul makes it quite clear in these passages. In fact, if we were to go back to the end of chapter 12, it says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. And the answer to every single one of those questions that Paul asks, the rhetorical questions, is, no, of course they don't. Of course they don't. So not everyone speaks in tongues, but speaking in tongues exists and is a thing. And so Paul wants this young church to be uh, sensible and wise about how they exercise these gifts. You know, it's a bit like Christmas Day with a room full of toddlers. <laughs> or, in fact, actually, it's coming up to holiday season. Ruth and I, when our kids were small, and being poor minister and minister's wife, could not afford to take our children abroad because paying for hotel accommodation and stuff abroad was really expensive and out of our reach. So what we used to do was we joined this fantastic organization called the Christian House Exchange Fellowship. And the Christian House Exchange Fellowship, or CHEF for short, <laughs> was an agency that organized and facilitated house swaps. So you could go and stay in someone else's house abroad, and that family would come and stay in your house. Now, the downside was that you had to leave a tidy house, which when you go on holiday is a bit of a stretch sometimes. However, the upside was that we got to go and stay in places uh, abroad that we couldn't have afforded to stay because we swapped our house with theirs or swapped the manse with theirs. We got permission, don't worry. And the even better thing about it when our kids were young was that when we went to another place, uh, generally we were swapping with people who had kids. So, ta-da, here not only is your holiday accommodation, but here is your holiday accommodation full of new toys that you've never played with before. We couldn't get our kids out of the house. We wanted to sightsee and go in, out in the sun and do things. No, no, I just want to stay here and play with these new toys. New toys. And so we had to exercise some rules and boundaries on how much time you got to play with the new toys 
and how you played safely with other kids' toys and how you made sure that all the bits went back in the box after you'd played with other kids' toys. In other words, you had to teach the kids how to play respectfully with new toys. That's what Paul's doing with the church in Corinth. The gifts of the Spirit, for them in some respects, are a bit like new toys. Oh, wow, look at the incredible things that God is doing in our midst. We're seeing miracles of healing. We're, we're, we're seeing and hearing uh, the gift of, of knowledge where somebody knew something about somebody else that they couldn't possibly have known because God told them. Not in a kind of scarily revealing your deepest, darkest secrets way, but just God saying, I know who you are and where you are. I know everything about you, and I love you, and I'm for you. And I want maybe to challenge you to deal with that thing. Stop doing that. Know that I love you. And so, there's this beautiful gift of, of knowledge. There's the gift of of, well, did Jesus exercise the gift of knowledge? Let me just think for a moment. Yes, he did. The woman of Samaria, for instance, where Jesus met this woman at a well, a woman who'd had a very broken and damaged past, a woman who'd had five husbands, and we don't know whether they died or whether they divorced her, but either way, he was a woman that was very broken. And in the midst of a conversation that started off with Jesus asking the woman to give her uh, to give him a drink of water because he was thirsty, it ended up in a conversation where Jesus said, go call, your woman, go call your husband and come back. And she said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. So either she was just living with someone by this stage, or she was with someone else's husband. And she's like, whoa, how did you know that? Actually, what she really said was, I can see that you are a prophet. And so Jesus exercised the gift of prophecy, of speaking truth from God that couldn't be known otherwise except that it had come from God. And what was the net effect of what Jesus said? The net effect of what Jesus said was that the woman went back after Jesus had revealed to her that he was the Messiah, went back into the town, told other people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did, she said. And she relayed her story of the encounter at the well. And then people came and they invited Jesus to those villages. She was a doorkeeper. And so she was a doorkeeper to the villages. And that little word of prophecy was a doorkeeper a door opened into her own life and head and heart. And so prophecy opened the door into her life and threw her into a bunch of Samaritan villages. And the effect of that was that many Samaritans believed in Jesus. And so the church in Corinth was discovering the power of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And one of them was this gift of tongues, what is the gift of tongues for? Well, as Paul describes it, it's, it's a gift that, that edifies oneself. Anyone who speaks in a tongue, says Paul in Scripture, edifies themselves. But the one who prophesies 
edifies the church. And so the gift of tongues exercised can be a gift that just allows a, a, a flow of conversation, of worship, of prayer, of intercession in relationship with God. It is a beautiful gift. I speak in tongues, but I don't make a big thing of it. And so it's a gift for private worship. It's a gift that if you like, in certain circumstances, just opens the, 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 the spiritual communication, if you like, between uh, heaven and earth, between God and man. It's a gift for private worship, private prayer. But Paul's problem with the church in Corinth and their problem was that they still got this immature tendency to say, do you know that we kids play with toys? You know, like they want the toy that someone else has got. Like, you know, especially toddlers. Like if they see a kid with another toy, they want that toy. And actually, as soon as they then get that toy, usually by an act of violence against small toddler, once they've got that toy, they then want the toy that that other toddler has picked up instead because it's just our fallen, broken human nature that manifests itself. And so inevitably, inevitably in the church, there was an immaturity, a childishness, not childlike as Jesus tells us to be in simple faith, but a childishness where there was a danger of them saying, my gift's bigger than your gift. My gift's better than your gift. God obviously likes me better than he likes you because I've got this swanky gift. I mean, they wouldn't put it like that, but that's really what was going on. And the temptation to show off, and particularly with a gift that is given to aid and facilitate private worship and conversation with God, was being misused in a way that was divisive and not inclusive, in a way that was not building up the body life of the church. And so Paul writes in this passage, and he makes a big deal of this. He takes quite a few verses out of his letter to the church in Corinth to talk about this stuff. So clearly, it was an issue. And he says, you know, it's good to be built up in your relationship with God. It's important that you develop your prayer life, that you develop your worship of God. It's important that your relationship with God personally and privately be a rich seam in your discipleship. So Paul is not for a minute saying, this is wrong and please stop doing it. He's saying there's a time and a place and actually, when you come together as a church, if you're going to look for spiritual gifts, look for ones that bless other people. You know, there's always the temptation for us as Christians to privatize our relationship with God, to say it's just between me and God, and that's the main thing. That was the heart sin of the rich young ruler the guy that once came to Jesus and said, teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Jesus said to you, you know the commandments? He said, oh, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus said, you lack one thing. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you will have riches in heaven. So here was a man who was insulated in the world from the troubles and the brokenness and the poverty of everyone else around him. He had plenty money for himself, so he was materially and financially safe, well provided for, with a good future. And here was a man who'd worked hard to keep his nose clean and to do all the right things so that he would be spiritually safe, so that, that God wouldn't have anything against him. And so here was a man who wanted to live his life in a bubble, a bubble of I'm all right, Jack, a bubble that said, everything I might need is taken care of. And Jesus said, your one big lack is this. You haven't let anyone else in, have you? You haven't let anyone else in. You don't care about anyone else apart from yourself. You're only concerned about your own needs. I mean, at its core, we might as well just call sin selfishness, because actually, it's pretty much what sin is. Sin, in its core and heart, is selfishness, putting me first. And so, a church that was making a big deal of my relationship with God but had not grasped what Paul had spoken so eloquently in the previous chapter about love, had missed the point. Let me just remind you, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clang cymbal. I'm just noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So it seems that even if the rich young ruler had given everything he possessed to the poor, but had never actually <laughs> learned to do that out of love for the people he was helping, it wouldn't even have made any difference. You know, empty obedience that isn't fueled and motivated by love is just empty. And so Paul urges this church to seek, to eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, and especially prophecy. Why? Because prophecy builds up the church. What then is prophecy? We've thought quite a lot now about speaking in tongues. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. 
When and how do people prophesy? Well, there are all sorts of ways in which people prophesy. And perhaps you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't, I never have. Well, I would beg to differ, actually. Because actually prophecy can express itself in, in all manner of ways and times and places. You know, when you speak into somebody else's life, and it may just be a conversation where you're urging somebody or reminding them. Now, there's a teaching element in that, but there can be a prophetic element. Sometimes you might be speaking to somebody in Jesus' name, and you're not saying, I speak to you in Jesus' name. You're just speaking to them as a Christian believer. And you're speaking to them and declaring what you know to be true about being a Christian disciple. Then, in a sense, in a measure, you're speaking prophetically. You're declaring that which is true. And it may be that you speak prophetically when you speak to someone and you share something that God, you really believe that God wants that person to hear or know. Or it may be that you have a very uh, strong sense of what God wants to say to someone, and you share that with them. Or it may be up here on the platform, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news. And if that, if out of, you know, a 20 to half an hour minute sermon, half an hour minute, anyway, 20 to 30 minute sermon, one thing hits your heart that registers and goes, oof. Well, that was the Spirit of God. That was the Spirit of God taking that which is spoken prophetically, i.e., declaring in Jesus' name and applying it to your heart. Paul wants the church to be speaking prophetically. And sometimes speaking prophetically is bringing a warning or a challenge or a rebuke. Sometimes it's bringing a word of encouragement. Sometimes it's bringing a direct word that I have a very strong sense that God is saying to you that. Or I believe that what God is saying to His church is that. Or I believe that what God is saying about the nation or the times in which we live is that. Anything which declares or seeks to declare authentically that which God the Holy Spirit once made known is speaking prophetically. And what is the difference? The difference is that the body of Christ is built up. The difference is that individuals, like the women of Samaria, for instance, get to hear something directly from God that speaks into her situation, that opens a door in her life to know Jesus as the Messiah and other people too. And so he goes on, and I think the point's fairly straightforward. If you don't understand what someone's saying and they're speaking in tongues, it's just a load of noise. Music, the notes have to be different so you get the tune. A trumpet call has to be clear and understandable. And so, intelligible words are what builds the church up. If I don't grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, then it's like me sitting in that church in Cambodia, an interesting cultural experience, but nothing more. 
I could believe and trust that they were worshiping the Lord, but I have no knowledge of it. And I couldn't join in except in English. And so, as the body of Christ in this place, let me urge and encourage you to eagerly desire the gift of prophecy, to eagerly desire that God the Holy Spirit would give to you revelation and understanding and insight so that you can speak prophetically. But bear in mind that all gifts are to be exercised within and around love. This is not a mandate to go around telling people what they should be doing or bossing people around in their lives. No word that God speaks is intended to do anything other than set people free and build them up and lead them to greater and deeper relationship with Him and with others. No word from God tears down, destroys, or condemns. None. It's not prophetic. It's destructive. And so Paul, writing in this passage, wants us to be fully engaged so that if you do speak in tongues, and by all means, eagerly desire and ask for the gift of tongues because as an aid in personal prayer or worship or intercession, it is an effective and powerful gift. I can testify to that. I'm not dismissing or dissing or disrespecting it in any way. It needs to be understood in place and in context. And Paul's concern is that if people come into the church, they have a sense that God is in this place, that they hear words that they can understand, that they hear perhaps a message as so often has happened, and it happens so often, you, you know, as a preacher, you just get, get beyond any sense that it's anything to do with you, but that somebody will come and say, you know, I just absolutely needed to hear that today. I can't believe, I can't believe you said that today because that was absolutely what I needed to hear. Well, what makes it all the more exciting for me was I can say to them, I didn't even know you were going to be here today, and I don't know the first thing about your life. So that's great, because it's nothing to do with me, and that's the Holy Spirit exercising the gift of prophecy. And so Paul wants people to know that the God that we worship is real, that Jesus gift and power and, and, and salvation is real, that His power to change lives and rescue you is real, so that the woman of Samaria, damaged from five broken relationships, whether by death or divorce, could know that she was not on the scrap heap that perhaps her community had put her on that meant she came out at midday on her own to collect water, and that instead of being that woman for whatever reason, she would thereinafter be known as the one who welcomed Jesus to our midst. Quite a transformation. And so whether we are speaking or preaching, whether we're singing or praising, we engage ourselves and are engaged in every way we can so that the body of Christ is built up. 
whenever we have the opportunity to gather with our brothers and sisters, we take it because the body of Christ is built up. Whenever we have the opportunity to be able to speak words of grace and love to one another, and yes, it's part of our own discipleship, but let's remember that our discipleship consists of learning to love God and to love one another. And you cannot separate those two. You cannot just ask yourself, well, what do I need to do to show God that I love Him? Because the first thing you'll send back to you is, love my people. Love the ones I send you to. As difficult and awkward, as unusual and special as they may be, love them. Because I love them and I gave myself for them. And we're going to celebrate that in communion. And so if you're on a journey of faith and you're not yet there, you're finding out about what it means to have said yes to Jesus and give your life to Him, then don't please feel excluded if you're not yet ready to share in communion, where we break bread and we share the cup to remember symbolically the brokenness of Jesus' body and His blood poured out for us. And we take the symbols of bread and wine into ourselves as a sign of our belonging in Him and to Him. And so if you know Jesus and you love Jesus, then you're part of the family. And if you're on a journey and not ready yet to join in, then be around the tables, but feel no awkwardness in letting the bread and wine go by if that allows you to preserve your integrity. So let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll move in to communion together. Father, we thank you for the beautiful gift of salvation, a gift that has plucked us from strange places and difficult journeys, from broken backgrounds and emptiness, that has brought us perhaps from abundance or prosperity and plenty, but has shown us that all these things too are passing away. And so, however or for whatever reason we come, we come as brothers and sisters who call you Father, the one, Lord, in whose image we are made and the one who has called us back to relationship with you. We thank you, Father, for the gift of grace that brings us all together in worship and around your word. We thank you, Lord, for your love, and we thank you, Lord, for all that it means to us to be part of this family collected from all these corners to be a people in your name. Lord, we ask that you pour your gifts out upon us. We want no less than all that you have to discover the gifts that are there, and Lord, that your Spirit might move in and through us to receive that giftedness which yet awaits us to be available to be used by you regularly or just once or however you deem fit. So we ask and invite, Lord, that you by your Spirit fill us and equip us, anoint us and use us to be agents and proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus in word and sign and deed. 
Lord, we recognize that our world around us has reverted in so many ways to its easy paganism, its emphasis on human achievement and endeavor, the pride and the vanity of just managing and being in charge. And yet with it comes so much emptiness, anxiety, striving, and hurt. And so make us, we pray, a sign of the relationship that brings peace and freedom and goodness and grace. So as we come to your table, grant us your blessing. Reveal yourself anew to us in the brokenness of bread and the wine poured out. And help us, we pray, to receive and to submit anew to you that we may take into ourselves these tokens, these symbols of the salvation that you died to bring to us, that anew we may declare our faith and our belonging. For in your name we pray. Amen.